0: Today on Ag News Daily.
1: Some board members, uh, producer, and the right team. and We really dug in to figure out what's the best place to pilot this technology.
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily podcast. We've got myself, Delaney Howell, and Mike Pearson. The full team is back in force today, Mike.
2: They are indeed, or I suppose I could say we, we are indeed yeah. all back in course, and you are on the road. You're mm-hmm. out uh, talking to producers, talking to those affected by the flooding in Nebraska and in South Dakota and mm-hmm. Western Iowa. Bring us up to speed, Delaney. This is, this is a huge story. What, what all have you seen? How does it look?
0: So yesterday I started out, headed to Yankton, South Dakota, um, and we heard from Josh Swatos last week on the podcast talking a little bit about the community of Yankton and the effects they had. And then, you know, really working to help other communities that could be out of water for as long as three to six weeks. And so that part of South Dakota, just still very wet. But as you continue to head further south into parts around Omaha, um, Council Bluffs to western Iowa, there are still whole entire fields covered with water. I mean, they look like lakes or ponds. Like, you can't even tell that there was a field there or there is a field there under the water. So I know prevent planting, a lot of folks are looking at that now. But just, it really hasn't even struck home, I don't think. I mean, I saw so many pictures on Facebook and social media and the internet. But even seeing it in person, it's still... The magnitude of what's going on here in this part of the country is still hard for me to grasp.
2: Yeah, when you were out traveling, were there any times you ran across flooded roads and had to turn around, yeah. or, or were you pretty well, well? Okay, so
0: actually today I kind of went on a road that said closed, but it was like kind of open, so I went on it anyways because I see there, I can see there were big fields of water on up ahead. So I, I got told to turn around, but I just, I really wanted to see all of it. And I tried to take some pictures and some videos and whatnot, but I tell you what, in Western Iowa, there are so many areas that have been hit so hard. I was talking to one of my friends from college and see, she said they had a family friend that thought they had about $3 million in crop underwater in bins. We've seen bins split open we drove past a bin earlier today that had been busted open from the flood. And even before I opened the door, the smell of that molded corn or that corn that had been what, wet, I could smell it yeah. even before I opened the door. I know in Glenwood, Iowa, uh, again, this is one of my friends from college, she lives over in there, was saying that their water treatment facility is currently underwater underwater. And so the city has spent fifteen thousand dollars a day to keep water in the reserves tanks just to keep the town going, so so many people are having that issue of finding reliable drinking water i don't know how many towns we went through right into town and out of town that said "Boil order in effect or make sure and boil your water so it's just crazy
2: absolutely. you know I was thinking about it. I saw a report uh from Todd Neely over at DTN Mm. and he was talking to cattle feeders and ethanol plants and just the added costs of roads and bridges being down and additional mileage. He was talking to one cattle feeder, Tom Feller over there at Feller and company who said that uh, basically their feed expense is now $500 per day higher because they've got an additional 22 miles for Pilger because they just can't get through. The roads are blocked and you know, Right.
0: So, I mean, there's concern with that. There's concern with drinking water. Um, I read a news report today that said more than 300 Midwest counties with several thousand wells could possibly be contaminated with E. coli. I was talking to an Army Corps of Engineers guy earlier today, um, and he was saying, you know, in 2011, just to compare the magnitude of this flood alone, in 2011, we had about five levees breached. Mm -hmm. This Flood has topped more than 50 for the Midwest. Ow. Yeah. And we also saw President Trump over the weekend announce Iowa to go ahead and be approved on the federal disaster list. We're now seeing estimates of 1.6 billion in damage. Um, in the state of Iowa alone, Governor Reynolds said the total damage to agriculture is, um, 214 million to livestock, farmland, grain storage, etc. One of the issues going on in Washington DC right now that I think we need to make sure we bring up too is really they don't know how to handle this to my knowledge fully. A couple of the issues are disaster aid relief which we still haven't seen that package from the hurricanes from last year be passed in Congress so they're working on Pushing that through as well as putting together um, some more funds available for those folks specifically hit in the Midwest, Nebraska, Iowa, South Dakota. But another thing, another issue is they don't really have a system in place to create aid for those folks that lost grain that was sitting in the bins that was destroyed by floodwaters.
2: Yeah, that is going to be a huge financial hit for a lot of growers who are sitting on some of that stored corn and stored beans, yeah. and it's going to be a huge uh, cluster. Whoops! <laughs> uh, for especially if that has already been contracted. I mean, they're going to have to fill those contracts. Yeah. And uh, you know, nobody wants to be out there. You know, the, right. the plants and the receiving places aren't going to want to get that grain. Uh, it, it's going to be. This is going to be a long-lasting yeah, flood it event. Really is just from those after effects.
0: And and the thing that I keep thinking about, too, is we've got the the prospective plantings report on Friday. That's probably not really going to matter. But when are we going to actually see or are we ever going to see actual numbers of how much grain was lost and damages? I mean, I feel like those are going to be really hard numbers to ever kind of grasp fully.
2: Yeah. Quarterly grain stocks should give us uh, some indication, but yeah, like you say, you know, it depends on, on if growers can get to the bin sites to determine what's still good and what's yeah. uh, truly a write-off.
0: Yeah, so that is going to be a huge impact here. And it feels like the markets still haven't really priced this in yet.
2: Um, no, and today was was certainly not in the growers' favor no. as we're watching a red on the grains yeah. all the way down the screen. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, one thing that could give us a little bit of optimism later this week is we've got U.S. negotiators headed to Beijing. We've got uh, Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin will be in Beijing starting Thursday to have some more trade talks going on there.
2: Good. Maybe we'll get some. These are pretty high level talks. Maybe we'll yeah. finally start to see some movement.
0: Maybe we can still hope, I think.
2: Yeah, we can hope. And, you know, as uh uh Madison mentioned yesterday, we are seeing movement on the Canadian front. China is still apparently retaliating against Canada for the arrest mm. of the Wei executive. Uh, they did expand their ban on Canadian canola seed imports today. They're now including shipments from Viterra. Uh, so this is mm. now uh, it's the second canola exporter to have its registration canceled for uh, exporting canola into China. So China is still moving forward with uh with those moves they're up up north in the great white north
0: huh okay
2: yeah and uh, justin trudeau said he is uh, expected to send a high level delegation to china to talk through the country's safety concerns because that's the mm. the fig leaf china is using to cancel these registrations they're saying that canola is unsafe and uh eh, Clearly, they've imported from these companies before, there have been no safety issues. You know, it's interesting that this safety threat just popped up after uh, Canada, you know, issued that arrest order. Oh, gosh, what was that, four or five months ago?
0: Yeah, it's been a little while now.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we'll see what happens there. Maybe maybe both the Canadian and the United States uh, delegations will cross paths over in China.
0: Hmm, Okay. Well, as we continue to talk about what's going on in the trade front, we've been kind of hearing rumors trickling from Washington that potentially we could see Congress rule against President Trump using the Section 232 or citing that national security was threatened by putting on steel and aluminum tariffs. And we saw a ruling on Monday by the U.S. Court of International Trade that said President Trump can continue to use these steel and aluminum tariffs for the foreseeable future, citing Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962 and saying that this was indeed constitutionally allowed and, and correct.
2: Okay, well, so there, they, will, uh, they, will, they will continue to be a weapon in the president's yes. toolbox, it sounds like.
0: It, it sounds like for the foreseeable future, that is going to be a weapon in his toolbox.
2: All right. Well, we've got some news here. The USMCA NAFTA 2.0, you know, is still waiting to be put into effect and there is new complaints. Coming up about it. Oh. This time, uh, U.S. labor officials are saying that the, uh, enforcement mechanism for worker protection isn't strong enough in the USMCA. And hmm. this has dovetailed rather well with what Democrats in Congress have said. They have not been terribly excited about USMCA, of course, and it's a, it's a center for the Keystone Trump proposal. So they're not a huge fan of it to begin with. And, uh, we don't know exactly what this means. Are they going to be able to negotiate any type of a stronger enforcement mechanism, or could this just be a reason to vote down USMCA when it comes before Congress?
0: Yeah. It, I think we need to have somebody on the podcast that can really explain the ratification process in Congress. Is it a, it seems unconstitutional is not the right word, but it seems like, that it shouldn't be allowed that we start completely over from scratch or we see the Democrats or Republicans say, yep, we're not going to push this through because of X related to something completely different.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know.
0: I don't know. I've just been thinking about that a lot. How, how it doesn't seem
2: political waters. Yeah. Uh, You're, you're getting in over my pay grade.
0: I know. I think I'm getting in over mine too, but Another thing that could be voted down later this, well, this coming month is the Brexit exit,
1: which Mm kind of rhymes
0: there. Um, the UK is, has put together, the European Council has put together essentially a package to allow the EU or allow Britain to exit the EU. And they have a parliament vote on April 12th to either approve the agreement Prime Minister Theresa May put together. Or I guess if they vote it down, then I, I think Brexit doesn't happen by the way I understand it.
2: Well, I think they go to what they call a hard Brexit, where there okay. is no kind of a, a negotiation. It's just, boom, UK, you're, you're on your You're done.
0: Own. Huh. Okay. So I, so I guess this proposal that they've put together is maybe to help with trade and how currency and economy works
2: yeah, still kind with of- the EU keep Great Britain you know tied into the eurozone without it actually being a member of the EU I think is what they're trying to do
0: okay that makes sense that that seems to be in line here so we see that happening in just a couple of weeks
2: all right well this would be the second or third time they've tried to get something right. through it'll be interesting to see if yeah. they can actually make it happen
0: yeah absolutely
2: um, I got some news out of Minnesota so the uh, there's a new bill before um, uh, blah, 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 blah the legislation that has expanded the state's disaster loan recovery program to include uninsured losses caused by the weight of snow, sleet, or ice going back to January 1st. And I mention this because the article notes that there have been 50 roof collapses on dairy barns this winter because of all the harsh weather. And this program that has now been – it has been passed. It has been signed into law yesterday. Is available. So if you're a dairy farmer who has suffered the collapse of your barn roof and you're in Minnesota, uh, check this out. Talk to, uh, talk to your lender, talk to somebody from the, uh, you know, from the state office, get some information, see if there's something here that can help, you know, keep your dairy in operation. Or, you know, if the worst case scenario has already come to pass, at least get some, some money back and help get your family back on your feet.
0: Yeah, I mean the dairy industry, especially, has been hit by quite a few different market factors, and it doesn't feel like really from a commodity market perspective that's those factors are going to change anytime too soon.
2: No, unfortunately, the yeah. the same factors of supply and demand are still yep. in play. But I did my part today, Delaney. I had a gigantic Good. glass of chocolate milk, and I'm going to have another one.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've been drinking a lot of chocolate milk and ice cream lately. It's that it's it's time of year where I like ice cream like in the winter it's like eh, i want ice cream but it's cold outside yeah. starting the weather's turning it's warm outside it's like 55 today it feels great out it's ice cream weather in my opinion
2: it is it is time to help the american dairy farmer and have some ice cream
0: <laughs> that's right that it is mike i'm all out of news for today what do you say should we hop over and check out the markets
2: Let's do that, Delaney. Let's jump over to the markets. And remember, folks, they are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. You can get in touch with their very talented market analysts and strategists to help you put a plan in place to mitigate your market risk by giving them a shout at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at Zaner, dot com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. As I mentioned in the grains, we've got red on the screen may corn down two and a half cents at three seventy seven and a quarter with new crop December down one and a half to finish at four dollars and a quarter in soybeans the may contract was down five and three quarter cents finished just above nine dollars at nine dollars and three quarters November new crop down a nickel to close at nine thirty four and three quarters Chicago wheat may contract dropped a quarter penny at four sixty nine and a quarter July down a half a cent at four seventy four and a half. Jumping over to the world of livestock, weakness in live cattle today with the April contract down 67.5 cents at 126.90, the June down 40 to close at one twenty seventy-two and a half. and a half. Slight strength in feeder cattle to March contract up 57.5 cents at 142.75. Of course, that contract is expiring. Uh the April is up two and a half cents to close at one hundred forty six twenty two and a half and the May down ninety at one hundred forty nine eighty. In Lean Hogs, the April contract. Up a dollar fifty, excuse me, a dollar oh seven and a half at seventy nine seventy two fifty. The May down ten cents to close at eighty-six sixty-five. And we'll see what's going on in the world of dairy. March class three milk up a penny at fifteen oh six, with the April up thirteen cents on the day to close at fifteen sixty-two. Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for this week's Tech Tuesday edition?
0: I would love to, Mike. So Exciting stuff going on for pork producers especially. We've got Andy Broodcall who's the director of emerging technology for the National Pork Board is talking about some pilot programs that they're using blockchain that could change the way really consumers get information about their pork being raised. So let's kick it over to Andy. Thank you. For today's Tech Tuesday interview, we're focusing on some new technology coming out for the pork industry. I've got with me the Director of Emerging Technology, Andy Broodkull. Andy, first of all, tell me a little bit about that role. As Director of Emerging Technology, what are you responsible for for pork producers across the country?
1: Yeah, so we created this role about last July um, with this idea that the kind of entire food chain is, is undergoing rapid change and uh, a lot of that's being powered by technology. So this role is really focused on how those technology changes will affect our our constituents and our, our farmers.
0: Absolutely. That makes complete sense when you look at the amount of technology out there, especially for producers. There's a lot of it geared towards a lot of different things, and that's really one of the things we wanted to talk about today was this new partnership that National Pork Board has announced with ripe.io. Tell me a little bit about the, the process of finding partners like that and, and a little bit about what this new venture will look like.
1: Yeah, so this all kind of started about last, uh, last fall, um, where our senior leadership and board of directors really kind of saw blockchain as an emerging technology that we should be looking into. Um, we see it kind of changing the supply chain. And of course, um, that affects our producers and how operate in that supply chain. So we started off uh, doing some research. So we did a little bit of uh, R&D work internally and then quickly figured out that it's something we needed a partner for. Um, So we talked to a lot of different blockchain companies, um, IBM, uh, RIPE of course, and uh, decided that I'm going with RIPE.io out of um, San Francisco. And really why we did that was they're really focused on building blockchain of food uh, IBM just building a blockchain platform where they do have the food trust built in. Uh, we want a little bit more focused on that.
0: And when you so say, when we
1: started talking, yeah, go ahead.
0: When you say the blockchain of food, Andy, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so they're really focused on tracking food, um, and IBM's focused on tracking everything. So uh, Ripe.io's focus is, is more on food, and what they do is create what they call a digital twin of food, where they can track. Um, food and metrics of food and animals and produce on their blockchain technology. So their blockchain of food is just kind of um, their tagline, but it's really uh, a focus of theirs is is tracking food and food products.
0: Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So this technology then that you're partnering with them on, how are you going to use blockchain for pork producers specifically?
1: Yeah, so we... We kind of started off by taking them out to a farm uh, down in Missouri, and then we had a workshop with some uh, National Pork Board staff, some board members, uh, producer, and the Rife team, and we really dug in to figure out what's the best place to pilot this technology, and it kind of correlated through some efforts of, of reigniting the WeCare program, and so Uh, We we have these ideas of doing these pilot projects. And within WeCare, we have these six ethical principles. One of those is um, the environment. And so we said we should merge these two kind of initiatives together. So the goal is to take um, sustainability metrics that we've been tracking or or we've been promoting for um, 10 years or so now and really take that data and write it into the blockchain as proof points. So while we we can talk about all the great things that our producers have done you know, with regards to environmental stewardship over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, this really gives us data and proof points on this uh, blockchain system to be able to track that.
0: So as a producer, will I use that individually on my operation, or is it just more of a national framework for all pork producers to kind of use as a guideline?
1: So the model is more of the guideline, and the pilot projects we're doing is taking on-farm data that our producers are already tracking, and then we are going to put that into the blockchain. Um, So all these producers are tracking these differently, so part of our job is to kind of figure out what's a way to normalize that data, make it all look similar so that we can look at it at an industry from an aggregate viewpoint of how are we continuously improving on these metrics. Down to the farm level, they'd be able to see um, specific metrics in a dashboard, and then if they choose, they could share that data with their supply chain. And that's really what we see coming um, you know in the next three to five years, is that this producer level data will be put on blockchain or similar systems to show visibility and transparency all the way through the supply chain. We've seen instances where that's all the way to the consumer. Um, right now, we're primarily interested on getting that information bubbled up to kind of the retail and food service level, because they're really the ones asking a lot of questions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Andy, what's the benefit of using blockchain for this type of system as opposed to another type of data management system? Yeah, so
1: we're going to do a couple pilots on blockchain. We have a couple ideas on some other technologies and tools to be able to do this, but really, um, blockchain gives you this kind of level of trust um, to where the data on that system can't be changed and it can be synchronized in real time. So there's no need to do this data transfer. Um, And so as you expose that data out to your network, um, the idea is, or the theory is that everybody can trust that data and everyone has that same copy of that data. Um, It's not me just telling you, yes, we did this on farm practice to improve sustainability. It's here's the data that I can show you and it's in this format that I can't change. Um, I think eventually we'll get to a point where you have Internet of Things sensors and devices doing all the data entry for you. So then it even gets um, more trustworthy because there's not really a human in there to do any data input. So that's kind of what we see coming down the line in the next five years.
0: Okay. so right now, then, are humans entering the data that they go out and collect in these pilot programs?
1: Yeah, and so we're taking, uh, in the first pilot program, we're taking historical data and writing it into the system just to prove that we can take that data and put it in. Um, As we do more pilot projects, we can start pulling that data in real time out of systems. So a lot of this data is potentially already tracked in an on-farm database or a farm management software as a service platform. Um, There's a lot of different silos of this data. And so we're trying to figure out in some of these pilot projects, the best way to streamline that. But yeah, for right now, we're just taking stuff that they've already data de- de- entered um, just for ease of, of getting this stood up.
0: Andy, obviously this is still a pretty new program, but as you're getting on and talking with producers in the pork industry, what are their reactions to using blockchain in this form on mm-hmm. their operations?
1: Um, most producers, like any technology are concerned that while it's, cool and buzzworthy that it's gonna create more work, um, whether that's using a new device or doing data entry. Um, so that's the biggest concern of what's the ROI of any additional time I have to put into this. Ideally, we're gonna be able to pull that data from places that are already holding on to it. So um, we, it shouldn't provide any additional work. Um, and then the other risk is, um, blockchain could or could not be the solution of the future. And so um, why why do a blockchain pilot versus another pilot? Well, um, part of that's driven by some other changes in the supply chain. So we've seen Walmart kind of put a mandate, if you will, on the leafy green supply um, with regards to spinach running on their blockchain. So as we see that kind of... Um, downstream pressure on the supply chain to use this kind of technology, we wanted to be out there using it uh, before that would happen.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Those are definitely two interesting risks or uh, interesting um, maybe downside effects of that. But when you look long term, you keep mentioning the five-year, maybe the 10-year plan for this blockchain system. Is Will it ever get to a point or do you have any goals to ever integrate some sort of blockchain system on all pork-producing operations?
1: Uh, I mean, that would be nice. I don't know that we can scale that much. Okay. Um,
0: Maybe not practical.
1: Yeah. I think we, we would love to get to a point where we can see a statistically relevant set of aggregate data, that we can say, this year, this is what the U.S. pork industry did with regards to environmental sustainability, and then be able to have that data as proof point. And so whether that's 1,000 producers or 500, I'm not sure what that tipping point is yet, but it would be nice to get enough people um, in a system, and it, could, it maybe it's not the blockchain system, maybe it's one of these other projects we're trying to do in this space, uh, but enough to get enough data to where we can kind of look at it from a national perspective and kind of tell that story for the pork industry.
0: Okay, so you're really just looking at, another connection there of that farm to table movement, trying to get folks to understand what's going on in the pork industry.
1: Yeah. And and when I say that five-year plan, I think we have seen, um, if you look at like Honeysuckle Turkey has done this the last two Thanksgivings where they've done a consumer packaging um, story of that product to where they've taken a QR code and put it on a package of turkey and that uses blockchain to kind of trace it back to where that turkey was grown and what environment they were grown in. So that's coming because consumers' preferences have changed and they really want to know, you know, more about the food that they're eating and then they want it produced in a sustainable manner. Um, We could see this, you know, as we build out this platform of being able to tell that story for our producers.
0: Awesome. That's interesting stuff. Andy, before I let you go, if folks have more questions, about this new partnership with ripe or just questions about the pilot programs that you're doing there at pork uh, board, where should they head?
1: Um, Yeah, just probably go to pork.org for now. And then if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer those directly, which uh, you should be able to find my email address or connect with me on LinkedIn to get more info from me directly.
0: Awesome. Andy Broodcall. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. All right. Well, again, that was Andy Broodcall there with National Pork Board. Interesting stuff that they're doing. I'm excited that that there are commodity groups and, and people moving forward with technology and agriculture.
2: Absolutely. And blockchain is one of those things that I, I still think has so much potential. I'm excited to see somebody or some group really put it to work and uh, and have some benefits for the for the end user and for the producer, which it sounds like we're on that track.
0: Yes, I think so. I think we do indeed. Folks, if there are interviews or things that you think we should be covering on the Ag News Daily podcast, please feel free to shoot us a message anytime on Facebook or on Twitter at Ag News Daily. Or you can find us at our home, globalagnetwork.com. We've got contact pages there as well. Mike, with that, should we let the people go?
2: Let's let them go.